0: This is day two of the 2022 Idaho Bible School. Our first period teacher is Brother Jason Hensley. His general subject is Elijah, a man of like passions. Today's topic is Elijah's drought. Brother Jason. Thank you, Brother Josh. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. I gotta tell you something really exciting. I was accepted into the Texan picture this morning. So there you go. I feel, I feel like I finally made it. I've been trying, trying for a year, so there you go. <clears throat> okay, so uh, today we're gonna be talking about Elijah's drought. Yesterday we set up kind of the context with what was going on with Ahab, why was he worse, and really we saw this overall message that God was the one who was in control. And so we sort of set up this foundation to see that that's really gonna be Elijah's major struggle. It's going to be this feeling that he has to be the one to change everything. I think it's probably a feeling that a lot of us can relate to. And what we're going to see is that God is going to teach Elijah in a very dramatic way, again, that he is the one who's in control. It's not about Elijah changing the king. It's not about Elijah changing the people. But that God is the one who has a plan and he knows what he's doing. But interestingly that plan is flexible and that's the piece that we're going to see today as we talk about Elijah's drought so here we are in class number two Elijah's drought our main message yesterday was God is in control and the message today is that God hears prayers so it's going to be an interesting uh, relationship as we see the interaction between God being in control and yet God being flexible and hearing Elijah's prayer so these two ideas are going to to go back and forth and work with one another all right tomorrow we're going to see that God gives lessons that push us beyond our comfort zone these lessons have fantastic blessings God decides when it's time for judgment and God does not relent all right so that's where we are we're going to have three sections today Successes and challenges, so this is what we're just going to see as far as Elijah is concerned. This is sort of going to be like an overview, just now as we begin to introduce him as a character. So what is it that we see as an overview? Then we are going to be spending the entirety of the class on 1 Kings 17.1. Josh asked me if I wanted a reading, and I told him, well, you could read 1 Kings 17.1, and he, he told me that I could do that. So, so there you go. <clears throat> so that's what I'll do. I'll go, I'll go ahead and do it. That's, that's what our class will be about, First 1 Kings 17.1. So the last part is then going to be looking at how God works and God's flexibility with Elijah. Our main message is that God hears prayers, and the big why question is, why did God bring a drought on Israel? This is one of those why questions that I think probably seems really easy to answer, but I don't think it actually is. So... Let, let that kind of stew and sink in for a little bit. And if you come to a really quick answer, start to doubt your answer, okay? <laughs> so so that's, a, that's what I want you to take from that. Why did, why did God bring a drought on Israel? I don't think it's as easy as we think. So here's our reading. 1 Kings 17, 1. It says, Now Elijah the Tishbite of in gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. There's a lot of things there. And this is how we're going to introduce Elijah. Um, Whenever I pictured, remember Elijah with the flowing beard, the wind, and like, you know, the light behind him and all that, the the triumphant music, da-da. Okay. It's like, it all happens right here. Can you picture it? Like, here's Elijah. He walks into the palace. He pushes open the doors. So the first thing he ever says in the whole Bible, right? There's no, hey, I'm Elijah or anything like that. Right, he, he pushes open the doors and he says, no rain, and then he leaves. Okay, so it's, it's very dramatic, very superhero-ish, right? All right, so I think there's good reason, just to put it out there, there is good reason, I think, for us seeing Elijah in this superhero kind of light. Now, again, Scripture doesn't give us these cardboard one-sided characters, So there's also good reason for us not seeing him that way. But I want to spend a little bit of time on why we should, and I think that's a good way to start. So his story starts with a miracle. Now I want to ask you this question. What would you say, since his story starts with this miracle, what would you say is the difference between a miracle and providence? Anybody want to just venture a, a definition here? One's, one's more natural. More supernatural. more supernatural, yeah. One's more supernatural, making the other more natural. Yeah. Yeah, Peter? Yeah. Yeah, so both have divine intervention, and one is, one is very clear divine intervention. You know what's funny? The only other time I've given this class, you gave that same answer. You were in the, I, that's pretty awesome. Look at that. and I, you know, I didn't ask you to say that either, so that, that, that was good. Thank you. Yeah, so I, I agree. I think that's the difference between a miracle and providence. Um, and the, just biblically, as far as like our words, here's the Hebrew word for miracle. It's mophet. That's your Strong's number, 4159. A lot of times it's translated as wonder. So you'll see it like in regard to the plagues in Exodus 7 verse 3. To Exodus 11:10, Deuteronomy 6:22. You can see very much the supernatural element here. That these are things that people would say, "Whoa, you know, you can't explain this." Ahaz's sundial. Do you remember that story? That that Hezekiah is going to be healed, and so he asks for a sign, and that is that Ahaz's sundial will go backwards. So that's a miracle. Second Chronicles 32:24. It's also translated as the word sign. So it's what false prophets are said to perform in Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 to 2. Jeroboam's altar, so Jeroboam makes an altar as he's gonna have this golden calf worship and it splits in half. That's a miracle, described in 1 Kings chapter 13, verses three through five. And then again, you also get another sense of the word sign in Isaiah's children and, uh, sorry, Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 12 verse 6 and Zechariah 3 verse 8 where you have people being referred to as a sign or a miracle so that's just a quick overview of how miracle is used in scripture versus providence which I think uh, tends to be more subtle as as we kind of came to that that conclusion the reason that this is significant as it comes to the story of Elijah is because when you look at Elijah you're suddenly struck by the fact that the first thing he ever does and the first thing he ever says is a miracle. And miracles were not things that people did a whole lot. They were things that God did. So, you know, God, God would cause miracles to happen. But it was fairly rare for a human to say, I would like for this to happen, and it happens. So I'll put out a couple of examples. So Moses does that. so we see it fairly frequently in Moses's life. The plagues are an example of that. Moses prays, plagues come. Joshua prays that the sun will stand still. So you see it in Joshua's life. Samson, you see it in his life when he asks for the strength to come back. But as far as anybody else before Elijah, that's what I could come up with. Now you might be able to prove me wrong, and that's okay. I totally don't mind if you stand up and yell something out and say, you know, you miss somebody. That's fine with me. Uh, but I got, I got Moses, Joshua, Samson as the only people who specifically request miracles before Elijah and they happen, okay? But I, I recognize, you know, maybe I'm missing somebody. But I don't think that takes away from the point that this was a fairly unique thing. You know, by Elijah's time, if this had happened with only three people in history, it's kind of a big deal. That here he is being able to pray for a miracle to take place. So we have Moses, Joshua, Samson, and then Elijah. The only person, interestingly, who had performed more miracles before Elijah was Moses. So Elijah performs a number of them. And I think that's part of what brings that superhero status you know, that, that kind of thinking that you always think of him as the guy that says, fire, you know, and then phew, fire comes down and like burns stuff up, right? This, that's kind of how we see Elijah. And, you know, I think it's kind of, it kind of makes sense. So here's his catalog of miracles. He has a three and a half year drought, 1 Kings 17, verse 1. He multiplies flour and oil, 1 Kings 17, 14. He raises the dead, 1 Kings 17:22. He calls down fire from heaven at Mount Carmel, 1 Kings 18.38. He calls down rain from heaven at Mount Carmel, 1 Kings 18.41. He calls down fire from heaven twice and burns up the commanders, 2 Kings 1 verses 10 and 12. You might recall, he was going to call it down three times, right? But the last guy says, please don't burn me up, and so he doesn't. So he only calls it down twice. And then he divides the waters of Jordan and he walks through. So these are the miracles of Elijah. Again, the only person to have performed more than him before him was Moses. Now on the other hand, what's interesting about looking at Elijah is he gets the superhero status I think from all these miracles. One thing I think though that we haven't noticed, because we tend to portray him in this way, is Elijah has a lot of interesting social struggles. Now I know there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of different ways that we struggle as humans socially. Um, so I'm not trying to, like, diagnose him or anything like that. I'm not qualified to do that. So, so I'm, not, I'm not trying to do that. But I, I think what God does when he portrays Elijah, is he's, he's actually trying to get us to see that here was somebody who really struggled when relating to people. It's fascinating to see. If you look at when Elijah prays, you're going to see these beautiful, long, heartfelt prayers. When you look at when he talks to people, you know what you see? Like three words. That's it. Like no matter what you know the situation might call for. If somebody's kid has died, he walks up and he's like, where's your kid? Who would say that to somebody? Right? Like That doesn't make any sense. So this is, this is what we see. And I think that that's an important thing to recognize. He seems to struggle with communication, particularly in that he just doesn't say nice things to people. So you know I don't know what anybody would call that, but that's, that's sort of the, what, what we see. He's consistently speaking in short sentences except when he's talking to God. So these are his first words, as Yahweh the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now that's pretty long as far as Elijah is concerned, but you think about this, there's a lot of things that are missing here. So if some person just walked through the door and said, as God lives it's not going to rain till I say it is, and then they walk away. How would you feel? You'd probably be like, "Well, that was weird." Right? <laughs> like you wouldn't you wouldn't think, "Wow, you know, that's definitely that's going to change everything for me." You'd be like, "Who is that crazy guy?" You know? And that and that I think is a helpful piece to recognize that when Elijah talks to people, there are very much things that you would expect that are missing. And I think we don't notice it because we're so used to his story. So that's the first example. Now, take a look at this. This is when he meets the widow of Zarephath. So these are the next words that he says. This is like a year later, right? So, you know, I I don't know exactly how it works, but maybe Elijah went a whole year without saying any words. You know, we we don't know. He was living at a brook by himself. Like he could have talked to the birds, I guess, but like there, there weren't a whole lot of people to talk to. So these are the next things that he says in the biblical record. He arose and went to Zarephath. When he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. You remember the background? Widow's going to die because she doesn't have any food, right? Okay, keep that in mind and consider what he says to her. Because it's a famine, right? And a drought. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. That's like an awesome introduction, right? You know, in the middle of a drought, you walk up and you're like, hey, I want some water. Now, what do you think would happen if now, Southern California is in a drought, right, but it's not like that bad and as far as people are like, you know, collapsing on the streets. Imagine that that's happening and you're just walking through LA, right, and you walk up to some random person who doesn't look so good, she's about to die, right, so you know, all like shriveled and hunched over or whatever, and you walk up and you're like, hey, give me some water. You know, she probably hit you right? Like that's, it's, it's fairly, fairly amazing that the lady actually says, okay, right? And she goes. And then just to add to this, you ready? Look at what happens. As she was going to bring it, so she goes and she's going to go like look for water. He calls to her and says, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand, right? So, oh, and by the way, I want bread too, right? Like this is, you look at this and you're like, wow. Like, it, it would have been good to get a little training or something, you know, here on, on how's, it, how's it good to talk to people so that they like you. So, you know, but this is, this is what he says. So then she turns to him and she just says, like, you know, can I just tell you this is totally ridiculous, like what you're asking me? So she says, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And we just read this normally because it's like a cute Sunday school story, right? But it's not, because she says, and now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. So she's like, okay, look, you asked me to bring you water, and I was going to do it. Then you're like, hey, bring me bread. Well, you want to know what? I'm going to go die. Like, that's, that's what I'm about to do because I don't have any food. So, like, this, I think, just shows us, like, talking to people was not like, elijah's favorite thing ever okay it was it was probably a difficult sort of thing that he struggled through okay now interestingly he goes and he ends up living with this woman for a while and so here's the interaction there it doesn't get better after this the son of the woman the mistress of the house became ill his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him she said to elijah what have you against me O man of god you've come to me to bring my sin to remembrance to cause the death of my son he said to her give me your son He took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. He cried to the Lord. Look at what he says to God. Notice the difference here? Give me your son versus, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. The life of the child came into him again and he revived. Ready for the contrast? Here we go. Elijah took the child, brought him down from the upper chamber into the house, delivered him to his mother. So the kid's alive. You know, you'd think, "Yes, like this is so exciting." And here's what he says. "See? Your son lives. Give me your kid. He's alive." Like, "Whoa." <laughs> you know, okay. So that's what that's what you get. And I think this is an important thing for us really to understand Elijah. Now, let's contrast all of this with Elisha's first words. See if you can feel the difference here. Now, what's really funny, by the way, is anybody remember how Elijah calls Elisha? Yeah, that's right. He, there's no words. He just walks by and he like throws his jacket at him and he keeps walking, right? And you know, Elijah gets whacked by this and he's like, All right, you know, and he he takes the jacket. But so what he says to him is, let me kiss my father and mother and then I will follow you. Do you see this? Do you sense the difference here? Elisha's like, okay, I think you're telling me you want me to follow you. Like this is your mantle, your special coat. But like, I got relationships here. I want to go kiss my father and mother goodbye. So it's a very interesting contrast in the first words between Elijah and Elisha okay now it goes on that way and if you just read through the story of Elijah versus Elisha there's a lot of similarities except like there's similarities in the miracles except in terms of how Elisha talks to people so he has an instance of working with a widow and in this instance the widow actually comes to him and amazingly says can you help me? she recognizes that he can help her now I don't know if you know Nobody ever comes and asks for help from Elijah. You want to know why? I think probably because he'd say things like, yeah, once you get your act together, like I'll help you, you know, something along those lines. But she comes and she asks for help from Elisha, and this is what he says, what will I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? Right, do you see how that's so different than how Elijah talks? Okay, so there's that sense. Now, just, just to be fair to Elijah, okay, just to be fair, and I think it's important to be impartial, Elisha also works with a child who's died, a Shunammite's son. And I want, I want to bring this out to you, that he does say, call the Shunammite, and then he says to her, her kid has died, he says, pick up your son. OK, and that's, those are the only words. So you know, maybe that was like a cultural thing. Somebody's kid has died, that's what you say to them? I don't know. But uh, it does, there does seem to be, there's, there is this contrast between Elijah and Elisha. Elijah's almost always alone. Elisha works with Gehazi. Elijah rarely is asked for help. Elisha is constantly approached for help. Elijah seeks God's wrath on Israel. We're specifically told that by the Apostle Paul in Romans 11, that he prays against Israel, whereas Elisha is seen as someone who cares. And I think that's a really important piece for us in understanding the story of Elijah because a lot of times we come to him with the superhero focus and and this is crucial and I think we come to him with a New Testament lens what I mean by that is by the time of the New Testament Elijah's a different person Elijah has learned the lessons the spirit and power of Elijah are going to move John the Baptist but they're gonna be different than the Elijah that we get in a lot of the Kings stories. Because Elijah's learned by that point. And so that's why you have him leading the second exodus. That's why you have Elijah turning the hearts of the fathers to the children. All of this kind of idea because he's learned but he's not there yet. And what we're gonna see is the transformation. So as we're looking at the story of Kings, we are seeing an Elijah who doesn't like people who finds people frustrating because they never listen, who causes a a three-and-a-half-year drought because the people can't seem to figure it out, how to follow God. That's what we're going to see, and we're going to see God working with him to change him and say, well, you know, I will bring the three-and-a-half-year drought, but I'm going to have you learn from it. You're going to learn from this and realize you don't know what manner of spirit you're of. So, these are all the requests for Elisha's help versus the none of requests for Elijah's help. So, again, I think it's a helpful contrast. Elijah is not asked for help, whereas Elisha is constantly asked for help. Okay, now. What God is constantly teaching him then is how should he be treating others. And I think we're gonna see this with that background. Now we can approach this 1 Kings 17, verse 1 again, because there's a very telling phrase in 1 Kings 17:1 that we might not have noticed until we branch out a little bit and compare some of the other passages about Elijah. Here it is, 1 Kings 17:1. Notice. Notice what brings the miracle. Do you notice anything that's missing in this verse? Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. What's missing from this proclamation? Just think about what you know of the prophets, right? Jeremiah stands up and he says, Thus says the Lord. This is going to happen. Isaiah gets up and he says, thus says the Lord. that's how it's going to be. What does Elijah not say? Thus says the Lord. There's no thus says the Lord. You notice he says, as Yahweh lives, you know, this was just a way of swearing back then. Not, not like cursing. You, you know what I'm saying. This is, this is a way of saying, you know, I'm, I'm really serious, right? As Yahweh, the God of Israel, lives, there will be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. That's really interesting that he says my word. You could say, eh, you know, you're kind of stretching it. And if you feel that way, that's good. I want you to feel that way. Because I'm going to now endeavor to prove to you that this is very much what's going on. I'm not just reading into these verses. This drought, I would suggest to you, was Elijah's request. God did not say, bring this drought. Elijah, looking at the law, said... If the people are unfaithful, God says, I'll close up the heavens. So therefore, clearly the people are unfaithful. Ahab is the worst king, bad, 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 right? So clearly they're unfaithful, so there should be a drought. So Elijah says, there's not going to be rain except by my word. Now let me try and prove that to you. I think what's missing is there is no thus says the Lord. There's nothing about this being God's word. And in fact, I would suggest the record itself emphasizes this because the very next words are, and the word of Yahweh came to him. And in fact, what you will find if you read through the story of Elijah is that Elijah never does anything until the word of God comes to him and says, go do this. The only time that Elijah says or does anything without the word of Yahweh coming to him, is when he stands up and says, no drought except by my word. It's the only time. So, let me prove that here. 1 Kings 17.2, the word of Yahweh came to him. This is where he's told to go hide by the brook. So he's supposed to go by the brook. Word of Yahweh tells him that. 1 Kings 17.8 and 9, then the word of Yahweh came to him. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. So he's now gonna go with the widow, according to the word of the Lord. Where the Lord came to him, 1 Kings 17, 13 to 14. Elijah said to her, do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and for your son. So he says, don't worry. I know that you're scared, you're not going to have any food, but guess what? Thus says the Lord, right? Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. The jar of flour will not be spent, the jug of oil shall not be empty. This is what motivates, what empowers Elijah all the time, except the word of God is nowhere in the drought. It's fascinating. The jar of flour was not spent. 1 Kings seventeen sixteen. neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of Yahweh. First Kings 18, 1 Kings 18:1. after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, go show yourself to Ahab. So he's told now, leave, and now I'm going to send rain. 1 Kings 19, there are three times that God meets up with him. An angel touches him and tells him, Elijah, you need to eat. So again, essentially, he's he's commanded by God to eat. Verse 9, again, the word of Yahweh says to him, why are you here when he's at Sinai? Verses 11 and 12, Yahweh passes by, and you remember how he passes by? As the... Still, small voice, right? So you constantly have this theme in Elijah's life. The word of God is always coming to him and telling him what to say, and he's always listening. When he curses Ahab and Jezebel, 1 Kings 21, 17-19, it's because God told him to say that. The word of God comes to him and says that. When he lightens Ahab's sentence, so he says to Ahab, you know, dogs are going to kill you, lick your blood, all of this. Ahab humbles himself, and God says, you know what? Go to Ahab. And tell him, because he humbled himself, it's not going to happen in his lifetime. So sentence is lightened, and again, he's told to do that by God. He's told to respond to the king's men, the ones that he lights on fire, right? He's told that by the word of God. So I, I hope you get the idea that when I say everything that Elijah does in his life is moved and planned by the Word of God I really mean everything like every single story is thus says the Lord the Word of God came to him and said this the one place is here the drought does not have that and so I would I would suggest to you that I think scripture is really underscoring for us that this drought was his idea now in case that doesn't convince you yet This drought is referenced a handful of times in the New Testament. And in one of those places, consider this. Revelation 11, verses 3 to 6, see if you hear Elijah. Revelation 11, 3 to 6, listen for Elijah. It says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses. They will prophesy for 1,260 days. Anybody know how many years that is? Yeah, well, if you do day for a year, sorry. I mean, if you take the days and you, and you turn it into how many days? Yeah, it's three and a half. But yes, yeah, 1260 years, too, if you do day for a year. But yeah, three and a half, three and a half years is, what, is what's made up by 1260 days, right? Which is how long Elijah's drought was. Three and a half years. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone would harm them, you hear Elijah? Fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. Here's revelation, fire pours from their mouth, if anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have, ready, the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. Now how long do they prophesy, 1260 days which matches up with the three and a half years of Elijah's drought. So that's interesting. Right, you get these echoes of Elijah here, and you will notice that it specifically says that they have the power to shut the sky, right? And so I would put to you, this is an allusion back to Elijah's drought, when Elijah himself said, drought, I want there to be a drought, because this is what the people deserve. Revelation attributes the drought to Elijah. And if you read James chapter five as well, talks about Elijah's drought again, I think you might see some echoes of it. You can see, though. You can read James 5. Echoes that this was Elijah's idea. Now, I want to be really careful here with this line. Elijah didn't realize that his plan didn't align with God. Now, God's plan is so much bigger than we can ever comprehend. God has his plan, and he makes his plan work. So... I don't know if this is strange for you know, a speaker to say. I'm not actually, I don't actually like the way I wrote that down. So uh, don't hold me to that line, please. What I, what I mean by that is God accommodates Elijah. But I think humanly speaking, the way that we would see this as humans is we would say this was not the direction that God was going to take things. And because Elijah requests it, God says, okay, I'll do it. I'll do the drought, and I'm going to use it to further my plan. Because that's how God can work, right? I mean, he, he takes even sins like David and Bathsheba, and he uses Solomon to further his plans, right? So, so we can't destroy God's plan. There's no way that we can totally mess it up. But I would say, I would suggest to you that here, what's going on is that when Elijah says, let there be a drought, God says, well, because you're a righteous person, that's how James describes him, right? The prayer of a righteous man avails much. Because you're a righteous person, I'm going to listen to the prayer, and I'm going to use it, though, to teach you that, in fact, you didn't quite understand what I was doing when you prayed this prayer. Okay. I hope that makes sense. And uh, if, you, if you want more clarification from that, you know, raise your hand or something, or, or uh, come, and, come and ask me later. Okay, he didn't quite realize that, that, that this didn't totally fit. For a long time, in fact, he thinks, and he says, this drought is what God wants. He says it at Carmel, 1 Kings 18, 36, that this is what God wanted. But I wanna, I wanna bring us to a really interesting point. This plan did have scriptural backing. Deuteronomy 11 makes it clear that if Israel did not worship God, God would bring a drought. So was Elijah right in saying, "Idolatry brings a drought"? Yes, I think he definitely was. It was totally biblical, you know. And, and if you said chapter and verse, Elijah, he could be like, "Well, Deuteronomy 11, you know, it's there. Deuteronomy 11, 13 to 17, it says it right down here at the bottom. If you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. He will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain." So was it biblical? Yes, it was biblical. Deuteronomy 28, 23 to 24, blessings and cursings. One of the cursings is, curses is, if the heaven over your head shall be bronze, or sorry, the heavens over your head shall be bronze, the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. Right, so that was one of the curses, no rain. So was it biblical? Yes, it definitely was a biblical curse. So the problem wasn't necessarily the curse. I would put to you that the drought was in line with God's word, the people had been warned that it would happen, but I think this is, this is where things get a little bit dicey because I think Elijah took the liberty of deciding when the people deserved what was coming, when the drought should happen. So was it biblical that a drought would happen? Yes, it was. Was it biblical that it would happen at that time? And I would suggest to you, no, it wasn't. Because God does bring a drought. And he brings it during the time of Elisha. But he does it, not Elisha. And I think that's an interesting contrast. An important thing to notice. That here... Elijah almost sets himself up as the arbiter without having heard it from God and I think this is something that Elijah is going to learn that God is going to teach him he's going to say okay I'll bring the drought but I'm going to show you without a doubt that your thinking was wrong now check it out okay so not quite that's not totally how God works And that's what Elijah throughout his life is going to learn. So God listens to Elijah, and he's actually going to use this to teach him. So for three and a half years, Elijah believes that God had shut up the heavens because of the people's evil, and God is going to be taking him constantly, constantly, through these three and a half years, slowly whittling away at this understanding, until everything all comes to a head at Mount Carmel and Mount Sinai. Let's take a look. Now, I want you to notice this. 1 Kings 18.1. Let's just look for what is it that God tells Elijah to tell Ahab. Okay? This is really important because, again, the Sunday school stories, I think Sunday school is great, obviously. I think Sunday school is a good thing. But, you know, sometimes we read the cutesy little kid books, right? And they're wrong. Like, so this this is important. Like, notice what Elijah is supposed to say 1 Kings 18:1. after many days the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the earth okay what's he supposed to say Ahab it's gonna rain okay what does he say anyone know check it out it's I think this is just fascinating So God, that's supposed to say God ended the drought, not the rain. That's kind of the opposite. So God God ended the drought, and he sends Elijah to Ahab. Why does he? Well, okay, because Elijah says it's not going to happen by my word. So I think Elijah, God's allowing Elijah to keep a little bit of his authority here with Ahab. Okay, so Elijah goes to Ahab, and this is what he ends up saying. So you remember what he's supposed to say? Very simple. It is going to rain, right? Okay, it's not hard to say. You know, it's an easy sentence. Okay, 1 Kings 18, 17 and 19. This is what he says. Ahab saw Elijah. Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? He answered, I've not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Now, do you notice, what does Elijah not say? It's going to rain, right? The one thing God says, I want you to say, he doesn't say. Instead, he has this whole, like, elaborate plan. So he goes up and he says, okay, Ahab, yeah, you're actually the trouble of Israel, which I think is weirdly ironic, by the way, because Elijah was the one who prayed for the drought, right? So you can kind of see this, a little bit of it. But he goes to Ahab and he doesn't say it's going to rain. Instead, he has this whole thing of meet me on Mount Carmel, bring the 850 prophets. Like we're going to have a showdown. All this God never told him to do. That isn't that weird? Like we we read about this in Sunday school, or you know, we just we we hear these stories and we think, oh yeah, you know, Mount Carmel, yeah, fire. You know, everybody learned. Everybody didn't learn. All right, like it was basically a major failure and it didn't work. I'm not trying to be mean. I mean, that's, that's what it says, right? Like, Elijah's like, yeah, everyone knows. And then the record's like, no, they didn't. Like, they didn't learn, right? They didn't get it. Now, as we, as we kind of see how this wraps up with this story, I think it's fascinating to notice what he doesn't say. So, he doesn't say it's going to rain, as he's supposed to. So the question then becomes, why did he not tell Ahab it was going to rain? And when does he tell Ahab it's going to rain? Okay. Why did he not tell Ahab it's going to rain? And when does he end up telling him? I would suggest to you, he doesn't tell him it's going to rain because in Elijah's mind, he requested the drought, right? Because the people were wicked. People worshiped idols. So, in his schema, in his way of thinking, if it's going to rain, so God's just come and said it's going to rain, so that means the people have to repent. There's got to be repentance. You can't have rain without repentance because that's what the law says. What the law says, that must be what happens. This is how Elijah's seeing it. So he says, well, what God really meant when he says it's going to rain is he really means the people are going to turn and then it's going to rain. So he says, okay, let's have Mount Carmel. I'm going to convert the whole nation. The whole nation, Appears to change, right? And you know what Elijah says? Hey, Ahab, it's gonna rain. It's the very next thing he says. When he kills all the prophets of Baal, he turns to Ahab and he says, Ahab, go back home, go as fast as you can, because it's gonna rain. So in his mind, this whole drought, rain, all of this is all about are the people following God or not? Now, have you ever wondered why Elijah suddenly has this whole big, like, his life falls apart? At Mount Sinai maybe we're just kind of familiar again with the story and we don't we don't totally get what's going on but we say "Oh, you know he struggled with there were there's were some emotional struggles going on there he was depressed and you know that very well could be sometimes we blame it on Jezebel because she says beginning of first Kings 19 the gods do so to me and more also if your life is not like the life of one of those prophets by this time tomorrow but I want to ask you this when was Elijah's life not under threat from Jezebel? It always was. Right? This was who she was. She kills the prophets. It was like her, it was, this was her job. So when she says, I'm going to kill you, you know, Elijah hears that message and he's like, well, yeah. You know, you've always wanted to kill me. Like, What's, what's new? It's, and I don't think it's just a recognition of, oh, Jezebel's not going to let the people convert. I think it's more than that. This is, when you see Elijah falling apart on Mount Sinai, when he says, only I'm left, I'm no better than my fathers, kill me, right? This is more than somebody who's just a little sad, right? This is somebody who feels like their whole life has fallen apart. And why does he feel that way? I think because it suddenly dawns on Elijah that his whole schema for understanding life, for understanding God, has just exploded because in his mind the drought came because the people were wicked if rain comes the people are going to have to turn and all of a sudden he realizes God just sent rain and the people didn't change and now he questions everything What were the whole last three-and-a-half years all about? How many people have died from a drought that I asked for but didn't actually understand what I was asking for? And suddenly, everything comes crashing down. So, I think that what we see as we look at Elijah on Mount Sinai is we see an Elijah who is being taught that lesson that God has a plan God knows what he's doing and yes God does judge the people God will judge the people but it's in his time it wasn't Elijah's job and so for us I think this is incredibly powerful Because how often does it happen that we see somebody doing something they're not supposed to do? And is it biblical that we say, oh yeah, they're not supposed to do that. Yeah, it's totally biblical. You know, we we can look at what they're doing and we can say, yes, that's wrong. That is not a thing you're supposed to do. But then we go and we condemn them for it. And that's when we've crossed the line. We can say, you know, brother, I don't think you should do that because it's wrong. Right? And we can take action on it. Disfellowship is clearly a biblical thing, and I want to make that clear. I'm not saying it's not. <laughs> but when we enter the point of saying, I've now taken over God's job as the judge, and I can decide, are you righteous, are you not righteous? That's when we have to realize the lesson of Elijah. And this is, in fact, I think what we're going to see as we go through this story, that every one of these stories in Elijah's life Every one of these events is him being taught God's in control. You don't need to be the one to bring judgment. God knows what he's doing. So that's what we'll see tomorrow when we look at the story of Elijah and the ravens.